Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome in Soccer Morning on the air. Thank you for being here to talk soccer for the next hour and something and another. Something and other. That's not a phrase that people use. Not starting out well today. But we will find the groove. Big show for you on tap on a Friday. Two very good guests lined up. We're going to go from Germany to Mexico. Ross Dunbar will join us first to talk about, well, Bayern Munich and what they did against Juve in the Champions League. We'll also touch on the draw for the next round, which we now have. Uh, well, the uh, Bayern Munich signing David Al- uh, Alaba to a new contract. Dortmund in the Europa League. Plenty to talk about in Germany. Uh, then Eric Gomez will join us. We, uh, had an aborted Eric Gomez appearance last time. It didn't happen. There was a timing issue, something about clocks and springing forward or back or whatever we do at this time of the year. So Eric will join us to talk about the Mexico roster. It's actually good timing because now we have an L3 roster to talk about with Eric Gomez. We can actually go into absences, surprise inclusions. We can talk about the classical last week as well. We can touch on the CONCACAF Champions League, which involves only Mexican teams, and talk League MX and the like. All right, here we go. Let's start with the news before we line up Ross Dunbar. Champions League draw held in Nyon. Neon? Ne- is it Neon or Nyon? These are important. I should have done Forvo for this one. Neon Switzerland today. Barcelona facing Atletico Madrid. Real Madrid facing Wolfsburg. Bayern Munich facing Benfica and PSG facing Manchester City. I will flat out say it, I hate this draw. I, I don't like this draw at all. I don't know. There's something about it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it's it's not good enough for me. I, I, I don't know. I, I would rather see maybe uh, not Barcelona against Atletico, not at this point. Maybe not Barcelona against Real Madrid either, but Barcelona... Barcelona PSG could be fun in this round. Barcelona Manchester City could be fun. I don't know. I just don't like this uh, particular draw. But we will get um, get four winners and move on to the semifinals where things will get even more intense and, and it'll be fun regardless. Europa League. United and Liverpool yesterday in the right to go on to the quarterfinals of that tournament. Uh, 1-1 is the final from Old Trafford. Coutinho scores for Liverpool after United goes up through an Anthony Martial penalty. Liverpool advances 3-1 on aggregate, so they are moving on. Valencia beats Athletic Bilbao 2-1. Athletic goes through on away goals 2-2, however. Sparta Prague 3-0 at Lazio, which uh, Lazio not showing up in this particular round of this tournament is a bit of a surprise, especially against Sparta Prague. Sparta Prague going through 4-1 on aggregate. Bayer Leverkusen and Villarreal play to a scoreless draw, goalless draw. Villarreal goes through 2-0 on aggregate. Braga, 4-1 winners over Finabache, and they advance 4-2 on aggregate. Dortmund gets past Spurs, 2-1 winners at White Hart Lane, 5-1 on aggregate. Uh, so Dortmund moving on. Sevilla, 3-0 over Basel after a goalless first leg. So Sevilla through uh, as they defend their title. Anderlecht. 0-1, Shakhtar Donetsk with a win on the road. Shakhtar through 4-1 on aggregate. And here is your quarterfinal draw in what we are calling, I'm sure, uh, some kind of clever name inv- involving Jurgen Klopp. Dortmund will face will face Liverpool. Athletic Bilbao will face Sevilla. Villarreal will face Sparta Prague. And Braga will face, uh, face Shakhtar Donetsk. So there's your Europa League drop. UEFA 
uh, in light of some activities in the stands at Old Trafford, has opened a disciplinary hearing against Manchester United and Liverpool after a clash. The arrest, there were five arrests uh, in, involved in this. Uh, the arrest followed a troubling incident that involved a banner uh, reading murderers and referencing the date of the uh, Hillsborough disaster being hung along the highway leading from Liverpool to Manchester. So uh, we're not being nice these days. Uh, the Manchester United fans uh, towards the Liverpool fans and vice versa. Despite the roster not being released, U.S. Men's National Team head coach Jurgen Klinsmann has said that he will bring injured uh, Josie Altidore to camp. Altidore went down with a hamstring injury before the start of the MLS season, has not yet played for a TFC this year through two matches. The United States, of course, plays Guatemala in two qualifiers on March 25th and 29th. Again, no roster, but Klinsmann's talking about bringing in Altidore. Like to see a roster, Clinsey. Thank you very much. Finally, FIFA has issued a financial report that revealed the organization lost one hundred and twenty-two million dollars last year. Now that's the first time in thirteen years that FIFA has reported a loss. So they um, in the red for the first time uh, in uh, thirteen years. They spent sixty-two million dollars in legal fees last year. Combating the criminal authorities uh, and the criminal complaints brought by uh, authorities in the United States and Switzerland. 62 million bucks. Now, don't worry. It's okay. FIFA still has $1.34 billion in cash reserves. So, yeah, they're, they're doing okay on that front. The financial report also revealed Sepp Blatter made $3.76 million in 2015, uh, which I don't think is a surprise to anybody that he got paid. Because that's what happened. Uh, a couple other details here. Um, the the uh, total compensation for Sepp Blatter was actually 2.964 million Swiss francs, excuse me. Uh, but that brought uh, that there were other incentives. $450,000 in varial compensation, which is a long service entitlement for reaching 40 years of employment at FIFA. There you go. Despite the, as I mentioned, despite the crisis, they, uh, they, their total income last year, like, they lost $122 million. Thinking, wow, that's, that's a lot of money. They made, sorry, they, their revenue was $1.152 billion last year. Their expenses were $1.274 billion. So that's the, the, the loss there. But they're still, FIFA operating in the stratosphere when it comes to this money. FIFA spent $27.9 million dollars last year paying executive committee members and senior management including Sepp Blatter and Jerome Valk who got 2.125 million Swiss francs that total had uh, had been 39.7 million dollars in 2014 so a 9 million dollar drop or uh, sorry that's a 12 million dollar drop in the amount of compensation given out to executive committee members uh, still pretty ridiculous each exec- executive committee member including Sino Galati by the way Received $300,000 last year. Senior Vice President Issa Hayatu of Cameroon was also handed an additional $500,000 for chairing the financial committee. So if you sit on the finance committee, which your responsibility, I imagine, is to keep things responsible on the finance end, you get 500000 bucks for doing so. Okay, that makes sense. And, and remember, this is a nonprofit organization. So FIFA malfeasance out there, but let's talk some actual soccer. Germany, Mexico, two excellent guests. We'll try to squeeze in some phone calls at the end of the show as well. Stay right there. Ross Dunbar will join us. We'll talk all about German football. It's Soccer Morning. It's on Backheel.com.
Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. All right, we are back on Soccer Morning. Uh, it's Friday. Friday means we get a gift uh, to look forward to a weekend of soccer. We may do some preview stuff here uh, with Ross Dunbar, who joins me now to talk German football. But we're we're going to have to review the last week. I mean, it's been uh, it's been pretty crazy uh, in in the world of of German football. And and we'll start. Hi, Ross. First of all, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Jason. How are you? I'm well. Obviously, I'm a little, a little focused in here. I, I, we have to start with Bayern Munich. We have to start with what happened on on uh, on. T- was it Wednesday? That game was Wednesday, correct? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I I told I didn't get a chance to tell the story on the web version of the show, but I did tell uh, did, did tell it on satellite radio. I was watching that game. I had a previous obligation. We've changed our clocks here, so it happened a little bit later in the afternoon. Uh, U.S. time than than I'm accustomed to for the Champions League, and I missed. I I, I saw Juve go up to two nil. I thought, okay, that's it. That's I mean, I should have known better, Ross. But I thought, okay, that's it. It's Juve. They they should be fine. They should see this out. Uh, I get home later in the evening and I check the score, and I'm shocked to find that not only did Bayern Munich execute a comeback and level the game in the dying moments. They scored twice in extra time and, and pretty much <laughs> pretty much dominated uh the the back end of that match. I, I don't I don't know how, how do we frame what happened on Wednesday? Yeah, well I think first of all maybe people will have some sympathy for the poor journalists who have to file for the 90th <laughs> minute because yeah. I, I I don't know how many times I had to change what I was writing as I was going on it was just it was incredible. I mean, um yeah, I mean first of all kudos to Juventus because they were they were excellent for about an hour. Um, I was saying to one of the guys in the press box at the Allianz that um, it was probably one of the most complete team performances that I, I've seen in a long time in the Champions League. They were they were great defensively, and great in midfield, and, and they were um, very, very good in attack. Um, so, yeah, fair play to them well, for the first and, 60 and, minutes. And I think, I think, Ross, it's important to point out, too, that the carryover from the first leg, because Dorm, I mean, sorry, Bayern went up 2-0 two, two in the first half of that game in Turin. So, so over the course of the second half uh, of the first leg and the first hour of the second leg, Juve absolutely, d- I, would, I don't say dominated, I suppose. Bayern had a couple of chances uh, in that second leg, but they controlled, the, they played exactly how they wanted to, and they controlled, um, they, they controlled it. Okay. Uh, Trevor, Trevor does this thing where he tells me things in the middle of me speaking and throws me off, but go ahead. Sorry, Ron. That's uh, no, all um, Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, like you say, it was it was a kind of more UV dominance than, than I think Bayern for the for that kind of first hour. And you know, okay, UV go two up in twenty five minutes, but it would not be an exaggeration to suggest that Juventus should have been three or four ahead by the hour mark. I mean, Cuadrado sure, yeah. I think had a chance just after half an hour to make it three 0 Neuer made the save. Yeah, I think Pogba had one that was wrongly offside. Morata, Morata did, yeah. I guess, yeah. Morata right. had two as well in the second half. So. Um, it really was UV's, UV's to win, and then all of a sudden, I think they just ran out of gas, and Bayern all of a sudden got a lot of momentum after Lewandowski's goal, and uh, it's kind of a hard one to digest, because I think a lot of people would have been critical of Guardiola had Bayern gone out of this competition, but at the same time, they weren't exactly impressive. Okay, the last 15 minutes, they were completely dominant, but you'd expect that of a side chasing a goal in the last 15 minutes. You, you would expect that kind of response. Well, uh, and having not seen it, and, and uh, I apologize for my ignorance to the audience here, but this is why you're on the show, Ross. And, and I imagine a lot of people here in the States had, had trouble watching the game live because hey, it happened in the middle of our work day. But, you know, um, 
expect Bayern to dominate as they as they chase that equalizer in the last 15 minutes, but how much of that was Juve on the back foot when they maybe shouldn't have been? Um, yeah, I think I think from a Juve point of view, I think a lot of it was down to um, taking off Sami Khedira and Morata, I mean, two excellent performers on the night, and you take those two players out of the team, especially when they're beginning to tire, then and you replace them with players of inferior quality, then I think that certainly is one thing. I mean, credit, credit as well to Pep Guardiola, because I think he made a couple of really important substitutions, bringing on Kingsley Coman, the uh, kind of French uh, French winger who um, is on loan from Juventus. Uh, he was excellent. He was absolutely superb. And that kind of went with something that Bayern had been missing the whole first half. Um, Juventus had really kind of stifled them. And, and um, you know, one of the kind of main talking points was, you know, why why would you... Um, you know, why would you not start Kingsley Coman or Thiago from the beginning? Certainly, when you're at home and you're trying to win the game, and and obviously Guardiola brings them on uh, with with twenty twenty five minutes to go, and and they go on and win the game. So, um, I think in one hand you can say Pep Guardiola got his first kind of starting eleven wrong, but he made the right substitutions at the right time. And obviously, after Bayern got the got the second goal, I don't think there was any doubt that they were going to going to win that game. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the momentum was all theirs. If that's something that you believe in, I'm certainly that there's there's no doubt about the the quality of um of the of Bayern Munich and the the type of players they can run out there. And you know, I suppose in in a lot of ways, it's sort of fitting that the the man who got the equalizer put them into extra time allowed. For the two goals that they ultimately used to to win the tie was Thomas Muller, and uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, Thomas Muller is a, f- a fascinating player because he he is so against type for for being world class. I mean, well, just give me some thoughts here, Ross, on, on what he means to Bayern Munich, and sort of again a, a guy that you don't look at and immediately peg him as um, a, as as good as he is. No, I mean, I think I think the description that comes to mind is from the article that um, Barney Roney wrote for the Guardian, where he said that Thomas Muller essentially is a guy going into the park with his dog, going for a walk, and he—that's <laughs> basically what he is when he's on the football pitch. He just walks around, looks for that little bit of space, and um, we we have this argument sometimes here in Germany with 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 you know Bundesliga reporters and and, and commentators who are here, and we ask, you know, is Thomas Muller, let's say, one of the three or four best players in world football, or is Thomas Miller an outstanding player, perhaps um, kind of as a result of the fact that he plays for Bayern Munich, where right. he has superb players around him, right. he's got superb coaches and that kind of thing. So it's an interesting debate, but I mean, you can't argue with a guy who has been doing this, you know, scoring 25, 30 goals a season for well, I mean, at least four or five years now. He's been doing it for the German national team. He's won the World Cup. He's won the Champions League, so um, his CV certainly looks better than mine, so I can't really I can't really, yeah. I can't really uh, have a go at him, but it's interesting to see that Guardiola, at the beginning of his reign, um, was very reluctant to play Thomas Muller, I think. He didn't really come across as the kind of player who would have been an obvious pick in a Guardiola-type team. And obviously, in the last maybe 18 months or so, I think Guardiola has realised that really, you know, to win games convincingly and, and dominantly, you have to play Thomas Muller and you have to yeah. try and build the team around a player like that. It's uh, you know I feel for you having to 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 uh, change your gamer uh, <laughs> right there at the end uh, with Miller scoring the equalizer uh, Ross but beyond that I mean and, and, you know the the events of the game it was also about the the narrative that was being written and then scrapped and then rewritten and and specifically I mean when it comes to the managers 
I, I, I do think, at least in my timeline on Twitter and, and among the, the people I follow, and that's not everybody, and certainly not the German sources uh, analyzing these things in German or the Italian sources analyzing these things in Italian, but it seemed to be a little bit less this means Pep fails, if again, if Juve had seen this out, this means Pep's, Pep fails, and a little bit more praise for Allegri. Um, how, how, how did that narrative shift, at least in your mind and the people around you, uh, when it came to whether or not, you know, Bayern going out at this point with Pep, a uh, lame duck, going to City at the end of the year, how was that being viewed? Well, I think I think that narrative that you mentioned there was probably a result of how dominant and how good Juventus were. I mean, I think people were kind of looking at it and going, okay, if they go out with the narrowest of margins, I think maybe people will start to maybe, um, you know, dig, dig, the, uh, dig the dagger in where they can into Guardiola. But I think in this case... Juventus were so good in the first half, they were so dominant and, you know, still sometimes when you watch Bayern in the Bundesliga and you see them not having a great game, but they've got players like Douglas Costa, they've got players like Lewandowski and Arjen Robin who can really turn the game on its head in the blink of an eye. There were so many times that, you know, Bayern tried to do that, they tried to give the ball to Douglas Costa, tried to give the ball to Lewandowski and Juventus were so well organised at the back, I mean... Trying to break that down was looked so difficult, and I think even if Juventus had played against Barcelona, who I think are everyone's favourites to win the Champions League this year, they might have found it difficult as well. But yeah, I mean, I think the narrative um, was was massive going into the game because because I think if Bar- if Bayern had lost that game, um, the obituaries would have probably been already written for Guardiola because obviously he leaves in the summer to go to Manchester City. Bayern have a five-point lead at the top of the Bundesliga, and I don't think there's much doubt that Bayern are going to go on and win the league, but um, for Guardiola, he hasn't won the Champions League in his three-year stint in Germany, and for a lot of people, that's a kind of that's a way of quantifying his success and failure, you know, whether he actually wins the European Cup. I would tend to disagree. I think I think he has been a success. I think he's changed a lot of things. He's I think he's brought Bayern's football on a few more years. I think the way that they interchange positions I think is just is just phenomenal to watch right um however I think I think that has been soured a little bit in the last six months since obviously he announced that publicly that he was leading to Man City there's been you know reports of of the fact that the contract with Man City was signed a year ago um which I think Bayern certainly internally are quite annoyed about from from what I I can understand um, and sure. certainly the fans don't really have that kind of bond as well with Guardiola. I mean, one of the things that interested me was that, you know, 88 minutes and I've played in this game and, and it was kind of similar to Claudio Ranieri on Monday at Leicester when he started to kind of throw his arms around and gesticulate to the crowd and try to get everyone going. Ranieri got a response. Guardiola didn't really from the crowd. The crowd yeah. didn't seem to take to it yeah. and the players emotionally didn't really take to it. I mean, the goal that they scored in stoppage time, but that goal was kind of out of nothing because for the last few minutes of that yeah, game... Well, it, obviously, the, the, and I, you know, this is what you're painting, a picture of, of different sure. dynamics, relationships. Claudio Ranieri coming in and doing something, doing something amazing at a club that was not fancied to, to even finish top half in, the, in their league, much less go in, and maybe win a title. Meanwhile, the expectations drew so high at Bayern Munich and Pep Guardiola the mercenary, Pep Guardiola, you know, the... the the Barcelona character. I mean, the, the character from another club who belonged so completely to another club. I, I do think that that's changed, and his image is is completely different now, especially with the move to City coming. But I imagine it's it seems very impersonal for for those Bayern fans. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could, I, mean, I think if you want to compare it, maybe in Germany, you could compare it to obviously Jurgen Klopp at Dortmund or. Um, yeah, maybe someone like Lucien Favre, who was at München Gladbach for four or five years. Um, you know, these guys had a very warm relationship with the supporters, and and although people do criticise Bayern, you know, for maybe having glory hunting fans and guys who maybe don't have the same passion as others, Bayern really do have a very good core fan base, and they are really passionate. Uh, passionately behind the team when they go away from home, they always fill out away allocations and stuff like that. So um, these guys, these guys didn't seem to feel the same affection for Guardiola as they would have for maybe Jupp Heynckes or even Louis van Gaal. I mean, I would be interested to survey Bayern fans whether they would find van Gaal a more, um, yeah, kind of, kind of type, right type of guy for, yeah. for that kind of yeah. job rather than Guardiola. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that's healthy for the club. I mean, I think, certainly, as, as I said earlier, I mean, from what I can understand, the Bayern hierarchy is not happy with Guardiola. You know, there's been reports of, you know, maybe Guardiola tapping up a few players at the club yeah, to take Man yeah. City. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a really healthy situation despite what they're doing domestically. Okay, well, they, they did, they execute the comeback, they beat Juve, they are now um, into the quarterfinals, and we'll, we'll talk about the draw here uh, shortly, but I, but I do want to just come, go back in time and, uh, and, and, just put a um, a bow on Wolfsburg advancing as well. Now, they're a very different sort of challenge. For Wolfsburg uh, against Ghent, then then Bayern Munich had against the Italian champion and a, a, a recent finalist. Uh, but Wolfsburg getting into the quarterfinals, we, we we did. I suppose we already did talk about this. I guess we can move on. We'll, let's do the draw uh, because I, I think we've had you since Wolfsburg advance. When you look at this draw, it's Bayern Munich against Benfica and it's Wolfsburg against Real Madrid. It's this. The the theme here is the the biggest powers, the the favorites. Certainly Bayern Munich and Barcelona. Uh, avoid other favorites. I think Barca's got a tough out with Atleti, who knows them very well. Uh, but you would you would you would bet on on Bayern Munich getting through. Wolfsburg, on the other hand, that's that that's trouble. No matter what's going on at Real Madrid. Yeah, I mean, from Wolfsburg's point of view, from for a team that's eighth in the Bundesliga and yeah. already scrapping to Europe for next season, I think they'll just be happy to be in the quarterfinals. And you know, for that club that you know, let's be honest, I mean, let, let's put it in context. I mean, Wolfsburg. They're not a big club. They are a company-backed club by Volkswagen. And they've only really been prominent in German football since the mid-1990s when they when they brought in football directors, football executives, and they rose up very, very quickly. They got to the German Cup final and obviously won the league in 2009. Uh, that was the first year that they played in the Champions League. And also, this is the second time. Um, so for them to play Real Madrid, I think, is, 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 is quite massive. I mean, they've obviously got good players. Guys like Julian Draxler, guys like Max Kruse, Andre Schürrle, who are international standard players. I just think this might be a little bit step too far for them. And yeah. you'd have to say that when they are eighth in the Bundesliga, they have a probably bigger priorities right now. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we'll we'll see how things are going and where they are when uh when that first leg against Real Madrid, the home leg, comes around on April sixth. Uh, I imagine that will dictate a lot of of whether or not you know how how they play. I mean, certainly. I imagine it's all about limiting damage when you're facing off against uh, Real Madrid, uh, but that will inform that. Again, meanwhile, Bayern Munich and Benfica. Um, not, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't, don't want to put down Benfica, but we, we do know that Bayern Munich is a massive favorite to go probably all the way to the final, and, and this is a pretty kind draw. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think how Wolfsburg felt when they when they drew Ghent in the last sixteen is probably exactly how Bayern Munich are feeling right now. Um, I think Bayern will be. 
I wouldn't say relieved to have beaten Juventus. I mean, probably, probably, probably more kind of satisfied because that's what they expected. But um, I think to get Benfica in the in the uh, quarterfinals is certainly a oh, sorry, yeah, quarterfinals is a big stroke of luck. But you know, you have to beat what's in front of you, and um, yeah, I mean, I think the draw certainly from a from, from a wider view looks looks quite predictable. I think you could probably see that it will be Bayern, Real Madrid, probably Barcelona, and one mm-hmm. of PSG, Man City mm-hmm. in the uh, semi-finals. Yeah, I mean, Manchester, Manchester City can make it to the semis. Wow, uh, that would be quite the achievement for them. Um, let's see. Um, let's go. Let's briefly touch on the news that David Alaba has signed a new contract. Im- important for Bayern Munich to to lock him up. Yeah, it's a massive move from Bayern Munich. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of rave about Lewandowski and Miller and Robin and Costa. These guys score the goals, do the assists, but David Alaba. In spite of his performance against Juventus, I must say, uh, is just an outstanding player. He probably is your kind of archetypal modern footballer. He is so intelligent tactically. He's so flexible on the pitch, great technically, uh, and he's just got great athleticism as well. So, um, yeah, that's a great move for Bayern Munich, and he's probably the biggest asset as well. I mean, for a guy who obviously has been at Bayern for four or five years now, the fans really identify with him. He obviously has won European Cups. He's been in European finals. Probably exactly the guy that you would want to take forward. And it's very interesting to see how Ancelotti uses him next season because when and when you when you observe Ancelotti at, at, at a new club, he tends to throw in a little bit of a um, a curveball. You know, someone like Angel Di Maria playing in kind of left central midfield at Real Madrid, and you wonder if David Alaba is the kind of guy now at 23, 24 years old where he would rather play in midfield than at, than at right. left back. Yeah, well, so that's something to keep an eye on. That, that leads me into a question of of how things. I mean. It's it's good for Bayern Munich to lock up Alaba, have him there. He's proven to be. I mean, he's proven to be a a, a, a truly excellent player. Certainly, um, certainly that regardless of who's the manager, who the manager is, he'll be in the team, and he he should be fine. But but you do wonder when Pep leaves, how that changes things for Alaba because Pep was so instrumental in in sort of finding a a, a place for Alaba to be most influential on the field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had this discussion with someone uh, on Wednesday. Um, do you, do you really think this group of Bayern players actually needs a head coach? I mean, they are <laughs> they are so, they are so professional yeah. and so driven. And you know, obviously, guys like Philip Lam have been in, and done so much in the game. And and you kind of wonder if um, they actually really need somebody to be changing things every weekend. Maybe Ancelotti is exactly what they're looking for, a guy who will create the right atmosphere. I'm actually going through one of his books at the moment, and you know, this is one thing he always talks about is he talks about food a lot, apparently. I mean, this is what, you know, what a great way to endear yourself to, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> to players when you can just kind of laugh, you know, laugh yeah. around about your weight and stuff like that and how he loves pizza and cakes. And you can imagine that's going to fit in really well at Bayern Munich. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. I, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that, that concept uh, of whether or not a team like Bayern Munich uh, needs needs a head coach needs needs a manager needs somebody to to sort of hold the hands of grown adult men who understand this game probably as well as anybody especially at that club. Uh, there's a there's an article by my friend Richard Whittle uh, at PasteMagazine.com that you should check out. It it actually asked that very question: Do soccer teams really need managers? And conceives of a situation where you know the the captain sort of figures that the, the team talks through these things the, the captain figures some things out uh that that traditionally a manager would but do you actually absolutely need that coaching figure you know uh going up and down the sidelines and, and and absolutely true ross and this is a bigger discussion we don't have time for today 
but it's absolutely true that we put managers on pedestals that maybe sometimes they don't deserve. And, and that goes for Pep and Klopp and, and Carlo Ancelotti and everybody else. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe you can look at, you know, Chelsea, for example, guys like Jose Mourinho who are, you know, do great things for that football club and then all of a sudden things maybe don't go according to plan and they're booted out and someone else comes in and takes over and doesn't really change much and gets the results and now all of a sudden he's the he's the saviour. I don't know what someone can do over two or three weeks that would make such a massive difference. Um, so I, I would kind of agree with that. I definitely have to check that article out. It's very interesting uh, idea. Maybe I'll talk about it later on. Um, in, in fuller detail, we are focusing in on on Germany, let's uh, let's talk let's talk about Dortmund because they have uh, advanced past uh, Spurs in the Europa League, and now because Liverpool took down Manchester United yesterday, we have a draw that has placed uh, Jurgen Klopp and his new club against against his old club in Dortmund, Liverpool Dortmund, in the uh, Europa League quarterfinals. Um, I'm being told by my friend Robert in, in LA that this is being called El Clopico, which is just. <laughs> Terrible, terrible pun. Uh, <laughs> how big of a deal is this going to be? Just, just, just think of the narrative, Jason. It's going to be fantastic. Um, I can't wait to uh, dig out my folder of Klopp gifts because that is going to be one hell of a game. I mean, I think also what's interesting is that obviously Dortmund are coming off the back of a, a tie where they absolutely thumped the second-ranked team in English football. So I'm not saying that's a, a reflection on the standard of English football, but that was a, quite an impressive achievement from Dortmund in the last in the last round to beat Spurs so convincingly, even if it was a second-string team. Obviously, you know, Spurs' second-string team is, is pretty strong, but um, Dortmund went about that superbly well. And, and you look at the front three of Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan and Marco Royce, and it, it, it truly is one of the top three, I think, attacks in Europe. And, if, and you, it maybe begs the question, if Dortmund were in the Champions League, would they be a contender for the title? You, you'd probably have to say so, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, they, well, obviously, look, they, they, this is why um, this is why the, the fortunes of a club like Dortmund, who, while, while among the, probably among the best clubs in Europe, it, it's difficult to maintain that, that elite position. And, and, and we've seen it with Manchester United. We've seen it with Liverpool over the last decade. If you don't keep yourselves, keep yourself in that upper echelon, sometimes it can be... Like you'd have major ramifications, but Dortmund more than anybody else, more than Liverpool and Manchester United certainly have recaptured what it was that made them, um, elite. If they go on, I guess, suppose they're prioritizing this thing, Ross. I mean, this is, they're going to make the Champions League, uh, places in Germany regardless. Um, but, but I imagine that, you know, winning a Europa League is sort of a, a symbol of, of re, again, recapturing what it was that they were under Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've got a 19-point cushion to qualify for the Champions League, so I don't think they're going to throw that away in the last eight games of the season. And I think Dortmund would be one of a few clubs who would actually have won all three European competitions, the Champions League, the European Cup Winners' Cup, obviously before it was defunct in, in 98, and the UEFA Cup. I think there's only four or five teams who have actually achieved that. I think maybe Ajax, Chelsea, and maybe Bayern Munich are those kind of three or four clubs who have done that. So for Dortmund, you know, there's, there's obviously some, some incentive there. And I think, um, I know people kind of write off the Europa League, but it's a European trophy. And, you know, if, if Dortmund can add a European trophy to their cabinet this season, you know, they obviously will qualify for the Champions League anyway and maybe add the German Cup at the end of the season. That would be a pretty outstanding season considering where they were 18 months ago. Uh, the other, you know, Dortmund advancing, as you said, pretty impressively against Spurs. Meanwhile, um, uh, Bayer Leverkusen, 
out of the out of the tournament now after a goalless draw in the second leg against Villarreal. How, how much disappointment is there for Leverkusen? Um, I think there would be massive disappointment at losing the first leg 2-0 in Spain. Mm. I think after that it was a bit of a mountain to climb and there's a lot of um, you know questions being asked of where Leverkusen are actually going as a club because there's a lot of kind of talk online about Roger Schmidt, the coach, being you know very you know very good tactically and having a vision and implementing a really good style of football. But you'd have to say that a team like Leverkusen shouldn't be seventh place in the Bundesliga. They shouldn't be yeah. you know getting knocked out of the Europa League so early on. They should, probably should be contending, especially when you've got guys like Javier Hernandez and Chalonoglu. Um And again, I mean, if, if Leverkusen, I mean, I think certainly the one thing to look out for 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 your audience would be if Leverkusen don't qualify for the Champions League, then you would imagine that Chicharito would probably be looking for uh, a new club. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, certainly, um, you know, I imagine he would still have options on the continent, but uh, if there is a big offer, either back home in Mexico or perhaps here in the United States, he, he may be enticed uh, to make that leap, especially because, you know, the modern world, Ross, it's not just about, uh, it's not just about what club you play for and, and what trophies you can win. It's also about your your commercial profile and uh, your brand. Chicharito's brand would be huge in the United States, obviously. Um, all right, let's let us let, let's briefly here before I have to let you go look at the, the table um, as it sits. Bayern Munich five points up on Dortmund, as you mentioned. Both of those club, uh, Dortmund with a huge uh, uh, cushion to qualify for the uh, for the, for the Champions League next year, so that's going to be fine. The the gap then is between Dortmund and and Hertha Berlin. Manchin Gladbach in fourth at the moment. Schalke a point back. Mines two points back of, of Gladbach. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen in that mix still. So what do you see playing out here over the last uh, over the last uh, bit of the season, the last eight games that will determine the Champions League? Um, I think you might see a couple of the clubs who maybe haven't had European competition come to the fore. I look at a team like Mainz, for example, who I think over the course of the second half of the season have been one of the one of the strongest teams in terms of form. Uh, I don't think they're a side that you can easily write off. I think you know, given how close it is, you know, all it would take would be one more victory for Mainz, and they could be fourth place in the Bundesliga. Um, I think you'll see Hertha probably qualify for the Champions League either third or fourth. Um, but for Schalke, Leverkusen and Wolfsburg, I mean, they've really not hit expectations this season. And I think from, from, from their, from their point of view, there will be a little bit of an inquest this summer. Um, I think what else we can look out for probably is, uh, Hanover going down. Um, Hoffenheim obviously coming back has opened it up. Now we have, well, five clubs separated by three points. Yeah. And that is Augsburg, Darmstadt, Bremen, Frankfurt and Hoffenheim. So. Yeah. That's probably something to keep an eye out yeah. as well. Well, and the last thing here um, for the American audience, uh, Hoffenheim, as you said, at the bottom of the table, right? Or not the bottom, but um, in in the relegation zone, in that mix to see who's going to stay up. And they do have an American there, Russell Canoose, who uh, you uh, pointed out to me made his Hoffenheim debut. I believe that was last week. Um, just just if you know anything about Russell Canoose, but also about Hoffenheim's chances of staying up in general. Yeah, I think they've got. I think they've got a good chance of staying up. They've, their coach is a 28-year-old, Julian Nagelsmann, the youngest coach in, in Bundesliga history. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean that's a very interesting narrative to have to. And and to be fair to Hoffenheim, I mean they've they've got a squad that really should be mid-table at least. They've got some international players, guys who are in the Champions League. So that's you know that that, that I think that's what they would be expecting this season. And and they can still achieve a pretty comfortable finish in the last eight games of the season. Um, with uh, Russell Canuse, all I know is that he won obviously the Youth Championship at Hoffenheim mm-hmm. with Nagelsmann as a coach. 
So you would imagine that the relationship is already there and, 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 and he might get more game time. Um, I think he's a holding midfield player. He was the captain of the youth team here at Vol- in, in Germany uh, with Hoffenheim. And I think he was the captain of the under-20 American team as well. So yeah. uh, an interesting player to keep an eye on. And I think, I think Hoffenheim, you know, I think they are looking to inject a little bit of freshness into their team. They've already brought some youth players up into the first team squad. So, Again, that's certainly another player to keep an eye on, I think. Okay, there you go. Russell Canoes, uh, a product of Pennsylvania, 20 years old, um, central midfielder at Hoffenheim, worth a, worth a watch. Uh, Ross Dunbar joining us to talk German football. Ross Dunbar 93 is his Twitter handle, which you should absolutely go and follow right now. Ross, thank you so much for the time. I mean, I, we could do this for hours, but uh, but we'll have to, to save it for next time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me again. Cheers. There goes um, there goes Ross. We will step aside, come back. Eric Gomez is ready to go. He's told me he's ready. We're going to talk Mexico, Mexican national team, maybe Chicharito Hernandez. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. All right, we're back on a Friday, man. This is a good show already, and it's just going to stay right at that ex- that excellent level of quality with our friend Eric Gomez, who joins us now to talk uh, Mexican football. Eric Gomez, 86 on your Twitters. Hi, Eric. How are you? We finally made it. So. Yeah, we, we're here. <laughs> we, we, just, we just discussed the lack of, of uh, communication or whatever, the syn- synchronicity between the United States and Mexico when it comes to right. daylight savings time. Uh, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're here. Uh, let's, let's start with, with the Mexico roster uh, for the qualifiers coming up. Obviously, um, uh, we've got a situation where um, these are not the most challenging games that, right. that Mexico is going to face in, in qualifying. And yet I imagine there's plenty for Osorio to try to figure out. Yeah, and um, interestingly enough, this is the first time in a very long time, I think ever, that a foreign team has pretty much been the base of the Mexican national team in terms of call-ups. So we've got three players from Porto, La Yuna Herrera and Tecatito Corona. Mm-hmm. No other Liga MX team, no other team in general um, with three call-ups. So that just shows you how far Mexico is, has gone in, in the last decade or so when it comes to exporting players and just the mentality of Mexican players in general. Um, you know, I remember looking at these lists, uh, 2005, 2006, 2007, and you would only have two, two foreign players on the list. Um, the fact remains nine players, uh, Europe-based players for Osorio, and we're still talking about yeah. absentees. You know, we're still talking about Carlos Vela not well, being there. Okay. We're, we're talking Memo Ochoa, et cetera. And, and I, 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 well, not necessarily Memo Ochoa, but and the name, okay, so so Carlos Vela definitely, especially because of the high-profile return to the team, et cetera, and so forth, but but also Giovanni. And and at the same time, I know my, my you know, my cursory understanding of where things sit for L3 at the moment is, is that Neither of those players, despite their, you know, despite their their quality when they're on their game, neither of those players are informed. Neither of those players are complete. Well, I, I know Giovanni's not completely healthy, so right. you know it, it's not necessarily a shock that they're not on this on this list. 
That's true. It, regardless, it's it's still, I think, a testament to how strong the Mexico team is at this point in time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you would not call up Villa. You would not have the possibility of calling up either Dos Santos' brother, Memo Ochoa, guys who, again, um, are playing abroad, um, making a pretty penny, doing quite well for themselves in general. And um, even though neither of those four players uh, have been called up, you still have a very, very competitive squad in front of you. Mm. You've got guys who were recently in the Champions League, recently in the Europa League, fighting for European spots for next season, fighting for league championships. And then you've got a pretty healthy Liga MX base. You know, Chivas, Chivas is doing pretty terribly, and they've still managed to get two players into that national team list. And, and if you look at the U23s, I mean, I think they've got eight players on that list. So... It's a it's a really really strange but a really positive time to be a Mexico national team fan with this with with these uh these rosters. Yeah, yeah. So and like I mean again, it's it's qualifying. I suppose you don't take anything for granted. Um, Canada's going to give Mexico their best shot, and, and I would argue that this is probably the best Canada's been in a very long time. Of course, that doesn't mean they should beat Mexico or should give Mexico uh, much of a run in either one of these games. But but there is going to be a, sort of a challenge, especially against a. Uh, a, a team that's going to try to be organized and compact and, and make Mexico break them down. So when they, when we look ahead to the actual games, who is, who is Osorio going to rely on to be the players to, to, to actually, you know, go, go against a, um, a, a Canadian defense and score the goals? Right. And it's a strange thing because you've got, I think, five players over the age of 30 on this list, but you've also got, one, two, three, four, five, six players who are U23s on that list. So, you know, we're looking at that generational shift right before our eyes. I think Osorio relishes that he's been given two games in five days against Canada. And despite, you know, th- these aren't friendlies, of course, these are World Cup qualifiers, but it, it, I think he realizes that he can have a little bit of flexibility with, with his roster. He can make a couple of experiments at this point. You know, Rafa Marquez is still on this team. I don't expect him to play. I don't, you know, and to answer your question, I don't expect him to be one of those guys that Osorio relies on on the pitch, but he's definitely a player who will bring stability, leadership, yada, yada, yada. And then you've got guys who are pretty much just in the absolute prime of their careers, like Chicharito, Miguel Ayun, um, Hector Herrera, Raul Jimenez, guys who are still in their 20s, guys who, who you fully expect to get to Russia 2018. Um, you just want to get those guys into playing shape and you got, you want to get them, um, I think, uh, meshing to your style of play, which is uh, Osorio is definitely a guy who, who has been different from the average Mexican national team coach for the last few years. So we'll see a team that is, I think, strictly based on what you've got going on for you in Europe with a couple of Liga MX players uh, thrown in there for good measure. But um, it's it's a, it's pretty close to Mexico's 18 for sure. Yeah, look, all of these good things, all of these positives, again, I mean, I want to come back to Vela just very quickly because, um, you know, the guy's mercurial. That's one of my favorite words to yeah. describe <laughs> footballers, uh, especially of his type. And, and you've given us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of his personality, not necessarily – you know, a guy who plays for the love of the game, a guy who plays because he happens to be good at it, and he's got other interests, and he can be distracted uh, pretty easily. And it seems that as though things have have sort of gone that direction at, at Sociedad recently. How much of that is the reason for him not being in this team? 
Yeah, I think Vela wishes you were six foot seven so he could play in the NBA. Um, the official reason that Carlos Vela is not on this team is that they want him to get back to the closest that he possibly can to 100% at the club level so that they can call him up for Copa America. There's no, I think there's no secret in terms of where they want to place Vela. Come this summer, of course, Mexico having the opportunity to play uh, in the 2016 Olympics as well. So they've got three players that they can choose from, from any age group um, to strengthen that team and defend their gold medal uh, and also the Copa America. But Vela is one of those guys who's going to be in the United States this summer. So they want him healthy. They want him 100%. I think there's no controversy this time as to why they didn't call him. So, uh, so Mexico again, two qualifiers, um, coming up in that window, uh, against Canada. This is also, you know, that you mentioned Copa America. There's the Olympics coming up for Mexico as well. So plenty on the, on the docket for Juan Carlos Osorio. Um, in, in, in general, um, as you mentioned, think, you know, uh, the, the talent level is certainly there. What's, um, you know, what are the, I don't even know how to say this. What what are the goals for 2016 beyond, you know, beat the teams you're supposed to beat? I mean, is there a target in the Copa America? Is there a target at the Olympics? Obviously, they're defending champions. I think Osorio is being smart enough not to fall into that media trap. You've seen Mexico managers in the past put unnecessary pressure on themselves by saying uh, outright, well, you know what? I don't think we would be in the World Cup if we didn't think that we could win it. That was Miguel Herrera back in 2014. And, of course, Mexico exited at their usual round of 16 time in, in that tournament. Uh, you've got guys saying that um, they want to do this or that in Copa Americas in the past, Confederations Cup, etc., and it usually ends up blowing up in their face. Um, I think Osorio is at, at least four or five months before we, we, we get to those uh, tournaments, not being not falling into that trap and, and then saying, hey, we need to get to the semifinals at least in Copa America, etc., um, I think Mexico needs to win their group in Copa America, and then after that, um, let's knock out football. It really does depend on on right. who you get. Yeah. Um, you know, the, <laughs> this is the Copa America. This is, I think, one of those tournaments where you can't really be at fault if you get a Brazil or if you get an Argentina and bow out. Uh, these are top world class teams. Mexico is yet to make that that big step towards. Uh, first world legitimacy in the football world. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, I think with a guy like Osorio, they truly believe over at the FMF that they can do that. Um, whether it comes in 2016, whether it comes in 2018, I think they'd rather do that um, in Russia, to be fair with you. Beyond that, um, the Olympics are just a completely different thing, and you've got a completely different guy coaching that team. Um, the expectation, I think, is a little bit higher because you won in 2012, right. but yeah. um, but it's still a, a very just a great thing to be able to defend the title uh, at the youth level. Mexico has had that experience a couple of times, and you've got players on that U23 team who have won the World Cup at the U17 level. So I think it bodes well for Mexico as we move forward uh, in time that these guys <clears throat> that they're calling upon for the U23 uh, program are players who have that that massive international experience. Um, even then, I think fans are secretly hoping for at least a semifinal run in the Copa America. Mm. And if Mexico can get onto um, 
you know, onto that podium again in Rio, uh, that would pretty much be the perfect summer. All right. I mean, looking at, at the Copa America situation, as you said, it, the goal would be to win the group. Of course, um, the, the, the challenger for Mexico is Uruguay, um, Jamaica and Venezuela, the other two teams. If Mexico wins the group, they're more than likely, well, you don't know what's going to happen in Group D. I think most people would have Argentina winning Group D. But either way, you're getting Argentina or Chile. So, as you said, yeah. it's knockout football. It's it's going to be either against the defending Copa America champions or one of the best teams of the world. And, and yeah, we don't exactly know who's going to be on the field for either of those teams. We don't know what kind of squad Chile and Chile is going through a coaching change as well. And, and Argentina, you know, Messi and... and, and uh, his burdens and all of those things. Who, who knows exactly what's going to happen here? And then there's the question of overage players in the Olympics and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and for Mexico too. I mean, that, that's absolutely true for Mexico. I just wanted to look at the 2012, um, Olympic, uh, roster for Mexico. You had, uh, you, you had obviously, uh, uh, Giovanni dos Santos was a, was a key figure in that, in that team. Um, at only 23 years of age at the time. Uh, who, who else from that team are, have we actually seen come through? Cause obviously Giovanni's in a, in a trough right now when it comes to right. his national team future. Marco Fabian just back in the team. He was a major figure in that club, in that, in that side as well. Yeah. He was, I mean, Giovanni, I remember, I think got injured in the semifinal game. Um, and just didn't have the opportunity to even play in that gold medal match. But from that team, you have seen guys like Hector Herrera, who at the time was playing for Pachuca now. Over at Porto, Marco oh, yeah. Fabian, you mentioned, who is the Chivas now, uh, playing in the Bundesliga. A couple of other guys who have made the leap, Raul Jimenez, who is at America now, over at Benfica. Diego Reyes, um, who bought by Porto, but right now is over at Real Sociedad in La Liga. And then some guys who are still in Liga MX who have been regular fixtures in the national team. Uh, you know, Javier Aquino is one of those guys. Um, we've seen plenty of Miguel Ponce, who, who was at Chivas at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, Javier Cortez, a couple of guys who have been pretty key for Mexico moving forward. <clears throat> I, you know, not even half of that team, I think, is, um, a regular national team fixture. But I think what Mexican fans and Mexican media have learned from U17 runs and U23 runs and U20 runs is that if you can develop at least three of those guys from each team, you're in great shape. You know, I, I don't really expect you know, there's a reason why Nigeria is in world power at the senior level. You know, they dominate U 17s. They, they dominate U 20s, but then um, they're not able to develop most of those players at the senior level. At least Mexico is getting a healthy rate of players to that senior team. And if they're able to continue to do that, um, like I mentioned before, it just bodes very well for the Mexican system, for the Mexican program, uh, to be able to, for lack of a better word, graduate these guys onto the main stage. Mm-hmm. Um, for the 2016 team, and we still don't know for sure who's going to be there, but there are a lot of very promising players. And I mentioned that at the senior level, you've got five guys who are U23s. I mean, Tecatito Corona, who's playing for Porto right now, one of the most exciting players that Mexico has ever produced, in my opinion, can play in the Olympics. So, you know, Sodio has some very interesting decisions. You've got the, the Pachuca kids, Rodolfo Pizarro, Irving Lozano. Um, I mentioned um, one of the guys from Chivas, Pineda, is 19 years old. Uh, it's just going to be very interesting for Mexico to kind of look at uh, their roster for the Olympic Games and say, how, how strong can we actually get? All right, let's, uh, let's, but we didn't get a chance to talk to you earlier in the week. I mean, it's great that we have you on now, especially because of the timing of the roster release for the qualifiers, but we also, we, we didn't get a chance to talk to you earlier in the week 
um, uh, about the, the Clásico in Mexico, Chivas de Guadalajara and, and Club America. Obviously, uh, the fortunes for the last couple of years have been very different uh, between these two clubs. And as always, but as always, very intense, very physical. Uh, the, the passion does not go away, no matter where Guadalajara is these days. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I think I got to plug my buddy Tom Marshall here because he wrote a very good story after after the Clásico. It was just a, as he wrote, um, it was an epic Clásico, and I think nobody nobody expected that. <laughs> nobody expected it to be that good um, because Chivas is just desperate for points at this point. Um, they're still not out of the woods when it comes to relegation, although Dorados, their, their only competitor is, is, is very, very bad. Um, I don't expect them to hang around that, that much longer. So at least they've got that to, uh, to look forward to in a couple of weeks, but it's just been dismal for them. It's just been absolutely terrible for them. And I think most people expected America to go into the Estadio Chivas. Now uh, they've gone through a name change there over in Guadalajara and win that game. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, and for a little while it leaned, it, it, it leaned towards that outcome. You know, you had America up two nil, Oribe Peralta scoring, Darwin Quintero scoring, uh, Chivas with a controversial goal disallowed in the first half, but they were just absolutely uh, crushed. You know, at one point Guadalajara was, was was playing with ten men. It just looked like America was going to romp to the finish and, and win this four nil, five nil, and then, as we all know. Uh, America gives away a silly red card, and then all the, all of a sudden Chivas score, and they're back into this game. You know, quite honestly, um, I think Chivas deserve to draw that game. They deserve to get a point at the end of the game. But um, you know, when 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 you're in that bad of a run of form, and your opponent um, seemingly blessed with with the best of luck all season long, because America, in all fairness, has not been the best team either. Um, it was just very difficult for Chivas to, to come away with anything other than a loss uh, from that game. But it was just, it was the most interesting Clásico that I've seen, at least for, for the last, I think, three or four years. And it really shows where both uh, organizations are at this point in time. You know, America, uh, their 100th anniversary is this year. There are people talking about how America might sign Zlatan or Radamel Falcao, or even Fernando Torres. I mean, crazy yeah. rumors being thrown about because America has that type of cachet. They have that type of economic power. And Chivas, on the other hand, you know, 110 years of history, uh, 11 league titles, and anything <laughs> that their fans can ever talk about for the last, I think, 18, 24 months is, are we going to go down to the second division? So it's right. just harrowing. Yeah, uh, to see these teams I, I, with, with I, such I, different uh, stories. I, I, you and I have talked about the the possibility uh, in the past, and I, and I'm, you know, sort of in the the vein of the Joker wanting to watch the world burn a little bit. I'd be curious to see what happens. Is should Guadalajara go down? Because uh, you and I have talked about. Well, right. is that something that the ownership and the TV companies would actually allow to happen, or would there be a shift of franchise rights, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Vigar and all of that? Um, I didn't real what, what what just very briefly, Eric. What's the what's the reason for the change from Estadio Omni Life to to Chivas? Um, well, Chivas owner Jorge Vergara is going through a divorce right now. Ah. And, <laughs> yeah, and it looks like I mean he founded the company that used to bear right. uh, that stadium's name, right. uh, but it looks like his uh, now soon to be ex wife is going to end up with the company. So oh man, when when when. When rich people, I mean, uh, you know, uh, no, not not necessarily wishing ill will on on Jorge Vergara. I don't have any particular 
interest in seeing him suffer, but I imagine that that's got to be some shouting for it on the part of well, the part of Chivas fans, for one thing, uh, right. just because of the way that he's uh, sort of navigated the ship poorly uh, during his time as the owner at, at, at Guadalajara. All right, so uh, let, let's hear, as we run out of time, hit on a couple of, of rumors. I know we talked about Carlos Vela in the national team um, and some of the, you know, the, the most recent sort of incidents that have happened in Spain with Sociedad and whether or not he's committed and all of these things. But the rumors of him coming back, uh, have, coming to MLS have popped up again. Uh, is there a reason for that? I mean, it, it just seems to be out of the blue that, oh, it's still a possibility this summer. Yeah, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, and, and you used the perfect word for it, uh, one of my favorite words, too. He's mercurial. He's one of those guys who uh, you never know when he's going to, quote, quote get sick, uh, end quote, of playing in Europe because he's been there for the last um, 10 years. Um, he finally had the amount of success that he was hoping for at Real Sociedad. He finally kind of silenced those critics. He finally made a point to make the FMF and whoever was coaching the national team at the time want him to play desperately, and he said no for two and a half years. I think he's accomplished most of what he set out to do in Europe. He's made a lot of money uh, there as well, don't get me wrong, but um, his off-the-field interests are much more akin to living and playing in the United States or Canada than to playing in Spain. He's mentioned several times that he loves living in San Sebastián, the, the sleepy little town where Real Sociedad is, because despite the fact that people know him, it's just a very calm lifestyle. And he's not hounded by paparazzi the way that he was in London. Um, he, he has his privacy. He has, he's able to you know, meet up with friends and, and, and do whatever. I think he took that for granted because a couple of weeks ago, I think one week ago, um, I mean, he was just fined 100,000 euros because he skipped out on practice to go to a Chris Brown concert. Um, <laughs> so, And I think that was either in Madrid or Barcelona. That was not in, in San Sebastián. So he, he, got, he got caught for that and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it all, it all goes back to Rafa Marquez's quote when he was playing for the Red Bulls. And he said, you know, I'm walking down Times Square with my wife and nobody is even making eye contact with me. And that is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened to me. That's an actual Rafa Marquez quote. Yeah. So I think guys in the vein of Carlos Vela relish that. And if they're able to parlay that into a you know five, six, seven million dollar a year DP contract, they will take that money. And I think MLS is banking on that as well. So I think um, whether he ends up in Colorado, whether he ends up in Chicago or wherever, it's going to be very interesting to see whether Carlos Vela follows in Giovanni's footsteps and takes the money after Copa America. All right, let's uh, let's come to another uh, another player that's been linked to MLS, and, and I think this is because he's actually spoken out about it. It's Angel Reina, uh, 31 years old, obviously. Um, at, at this point, MLS making a, a, a priority to, to try to attract these these players. He's not quite in the same group as you know Giovanni Dos Santos or Carlos Vela, but I'm sure he would be a, an asset to some team in MLS. Right, and you know I would take anything that Angel Reina says with a grain of salt. Okay, just because he's that type of guy, um, right? And he's out of a job right now. I mean, he was most recently with Chivas. He was making one point eight million dollars a year, one of the highest play, paid players in uh, in the Liga MX. And now he's suddenly out of a job. And this is a guy who was you know two years ago he was a national teamer. He was one of those guys that uh, Chepo de la Torre or Victor Manuel Vucetich would look to off the bench for a solution. He's just a very talented great player. He has won the Golden Boot in Mexico. Um, 
He has pretty much been one of the most talented. He's one of those guys who you, you he's Vela, but on a, I think on a much smaller scale, uh, you don't understand why he doesn't use his talents um, uh, at the level that he should be. Um, he's one of those guys who, when he was 26, 27, most, most people still expected to, to move to Europe, but just that just never came to pass. Yeah. And he's been bouncing around from team to team after he left America, I think, 2012. Um, he's still worth something to, to an MLS team. I think he, I don't think he's worth seven figures anymore. Um, I don't think you even need to, to throw a full DP contract at him. Maybe you could throw some of that targeted allocation money to get him. Yeah. That's, and, uh, that, that's the question is how much he would cost. By, yeah, exactly. That's the first time I've used the term targeted allocation money. In, in <laughs> welcome, welcome to the dark side, Eric. Thank right. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, he's still, he's a very talented player. I just think that whether he's interested in the project, whether you keep him motivated is the main issue. And when I spoke about this on Twitter with a couple of my followers. It's, it's just, who do you want him, who do you want coaching a guy like Angelina? Who's going to be that drill sergeant who also has the capability to yeah. turn around and coddle him when he needs it because he's a head case. Okay. You know, that yeah. plain and simple, that's how I describe Ankel Reina. He's very talented, but he's a head case. Yeah. And it really needs to be the perfect situation for him to be able to thrive again. Okay. Uh, last thing here, very briefly before I let you go, a uh, little bit being made um, uh, here in the States about uh, Sebastian Salcedo coming back into the U.S. fold. He's a U-20 player. He's included in uh, Tab Ramos's U-20 um, Dallas Cup team. Uh, he did... Uh, get a call up for the Mexican national team and did uh, go, I think, maybe even played in a couple of games. How is that? I mean, you know, individual cases by individual cases, um, uh, Eric, but how is that, th- th- this particular player, how is he viewed within the Mexican setup? And is there still a sense that he could flip back or do they want him? How's that work? Yeah, again, he played, I think, one match uh, for the U20s last year. And he did so after having played a couple of games with the U with the U S you know, fans in Mexico, they're, they're becoming more and more accustomed to seeing Mexican American players, uh, do this switch back and forth with their allegiances or say at one point, you know, Hey, I want to play for Mexico. And then the next day, well, you know what? I'm suiting up for the USA. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's that big of a deal, but I still think that he has a chance to, to make it in Mexico. He's a very talented player. I mean, he's playing for Veracruz at the moment. Yeah. Um, so they're getting a long look at him, but, uh, I don't know. I think uh, I think that he's one of those guys that, um, given again the right situation to develop, because Mexico's not the easiest league um, to get minutes in when when you're 19 years old, like Saucedo is. But uh, the fact that Veracruz would go out of their way to, to sign sign him at least on a loan deal um, speaks to what he's able to do. He's an interesting player. You know, I don't have the U20 national team sheet in front of me for Mexico. But again, this is a point in time where El Tri is pretty much rife with talent at, at every one of those youth youth team levels. So I think guys like Saucedo um, step back and say, well, I was in training camp with most of these guys. Right. Am I going to be able to get subsequent call-ups? You know? So I think it's it's a very personal thing for, for players like Saucedo. And if he, if he feels that he has, because he's had a taste of both camps, if he feels like he has a better shot at being a regular U.S. men's national team call-up, yeah. then he'll make that I, I, choice, and I wouldn't blame him for yeah, it. Yeah, look, and I haven't, I haven't had this conversation in a while, and obviously I'm not, 
I'm not. I, I don't have direct knowledge of how these kids feel because I'm not. I'm not a dual international. I'm, I'm not Mexican American. But I've talked to enough of them. I mean, I remember a conversation with Christian Lucatero, who uh, was recently signed as a homegrown player by the Dynamo. He's a Texan kid. He's had a chance to go to camp. I don't know that he played for Mexico, but he went to a youth national team camp. Um, He's been back in the U.S. setup since then. He, you know, th- these kids don't think of it in the black and white terms right. that that some fans tend to, especially fans who are committed to one side or the other um, based on their passion. It just doesn't work that way for a Lucatero or a Salcedo or anybody else, for that matter, who uh, who has connections to both countries. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Salcedo. All right, Listen, I, you hit I, the nail on the head real quick there. I mean, I, this is a column that I've been meaning to write for a long time. Uh, you know, as a Mexican American, I can I tell you this: I've lived, studied, worked in both countries. Um, I was born in the United States, but I have Mexican parents. I love the United States, and I think I put myself in those shoes several times. And despite the fact that you know, if I were a football player, I would love to play for Mexico as my first choice. If the United States came knocking on my door and said, "Hey, we want you to play," I would relish and I would cherish that chance, and I would play my heart out for the USA. So, you know, I think that's the situation that a lot of those kids are in currently. And it's, it's hard to assimilate for, and I don't mean to be rude here, but, but it's hard to assimilate for a lot of fans who, um, you know, are in American outlaws or, or in, in, in Barabarabas in for Mexican teams, those hardcore fans who look at the flag and say, how could you choose to do anything other than play for this country? It's not black and white, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's not a zero sum game. You can, if you, Play for Mexico, or as you said, for in your particular case, Eric, if, if you were in that position, you would love to play for Mexico, but it's not like that means you wouldn't play for the United States if they call you up. And it's, I mean, first of all, that's a ridiculous position to put any player in. If, if Mexico calls you, you play for them, you want to play for Mexico. But if Mexico doesn't come calling and the United States does, are you supposed to turn down the U.S. because exactly. you're, being, you're being loyal to Mexico? Come on, that's ridiculous. No, and it's not just that, that you would say, oh, the USA is kind of this second-tier option. Right. Absolutely not. No, I mean, of course again, not. If the USA came yeah. to my door and said, we want you to play for us, I would just I would fall in love. I mean, I'm already in love with that team in that country. But I would just, I would play my heart out. You know what I mean? It's yeah, not, it's, you're not going to give anything less than 100%. It doesn't fit, it doesn't fit what we view, how we view our sports and the passion that we have for our teams and how committed we are, Try how tribal it is. I mean, uh, you, you, can you be parts of two tribes? You can, but, so, but fans don't always see, uh, that is something they're, they're willing to get on board with. Eric Gomez, go follow him. Eric Gomez86. Man, what a good conversation. We've had two really good <laughs> ones today. Eric, I'm, I'm out of time. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All, All right. right. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. I will try to squeeze in a couple of phone calls. I pushed that longer. There were things we had to cover. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. We can take this to like 20 or maybe even 25. Thank you for calling Call-In Studios host and call screener line. Please enter your show number and press pound. Enter. Welcome, host. You are now in the host room and can manage your callers from the Call-In Studio web interface.
welcome to Soccer Morning. Here's your host, Jason Davis. All right, here we go. Back on Soccer Morning. Limited time to take your phone calls, but the lines are open. 646-832-3909. And uh, let's hit some news, man. So the New York Cosmos are making... Well, okay. The New York Cosmos, the actual soccer team, just made some news. But there's also the New York Cosmos past their their glory days in the news because I saw yesterday, I was tipped by Tim on Twitter, that there's going to be, or at least they're trying to put together a drama television show based on the original New York Cosmos. That is fascinating to me. I want to talk about that. But also, the new New York Cosmos, which sounds like something from Futurama, have just signed Nico Cranchar, which is... A pretty big deal. I mean, yesterday on on Sirius XM, I talked a little bit about Joe Cole potentially going to the Tampa Bay Rowdies, and I was even tipped to the fact it didn't come from him directly. I don't have a I don't have an in with Joe Cole, but I was told that Joe Cole did not necessarily squash the notion that he could end up as a Tampa Bay Rowdy. So you could have in pretty quick succession as the NASL season rolls towards starting in 2016, Nico Cranchar is a member member of the New York Cosmos and Joe Cole playing in Tampa Bay and while you know no one's going to hold up either one of those players as elite at this point in their careers those are pretty damn good signings for for NASL in fact you could argue that those are players that would fit fine in MLS even at this point maybe less Joe Cole than Nico Cranchar and as has been pointed out Charlie Baum and a couple other people it's all about interest and commitment for Nico Cranchar who by the way is 31 It's it's not like he's ancient at this point Nico Kanchar with how many how many caps does he have for Croatia? Eighty one caps for Croatia. I mean, you got to be pretty good to have eighty one caps for Croatia. Last uh, last played with uh, Dino Kiev. Is that where he was last? I'm not sure, but yeah, you remember him from Tottenham. You remember him from QPR the last couple of years, where I think he made some appearances. Uh, in fact, he may have. That may be where he's played most recently. Is is QPR? So they're in the championship. And so Nico Kanchar now a member of the New York Cosmos. That's a big deal for them. 646-832-3909. Because we did push this, and again, I apologize, but that was a really good conversation with Eric. Because we did push this, um, only got about five minutes here. So if you want to get in, you got to jump in now. Uh, or we'll just wrap it up. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with that. It is it is Friday. You are looking forward to your weekend. We didn't do much of a of a preview in the end of the games coming up in the Bundesliga or Liga MX or MLS for that matter. Uh, but I'm sure there's some pretty strong games coming up. I think we've got uh, tonight in MLS, NYCFC in Orlando. Oh, and I'll throw this out there because I just remembered. Uh, it turns out that I'm going to be, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go out, have a beer and watch that game tonight. There's a soccer bar in uh, in the D.C. Metro in the, in Northern Virginia that I'm going to hang out at. If you are in D.C., find me on Twitter at DavisJS, and maybe we can grab a beer and watch that game. Uh, enjoy the uh, enjoy the SAP function uh, if they put the the sound on for that game. NYCFC hosting Orlando City at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Uh, also, on the weekend, just from an MLS perspective, the Cal- the California Classico coming up um, tomorrow. That's always a big game. If you have MLS Live, 10.30 p.m. Eastern, uh, you can watch that one. The national TV games on Sunday, D.C. United and Colorado, which I don't understand why that one's on the schedule. Uh, I got I got called out for hating D- on D.C. United the other day. And come on, what is there to like about D.C. United right now? 
Really? We're going to have a, somebody's going to have a, I, you look, I, I, you love your team, you defend your team, but is there anything to be excited about right now for DC United? And then Sporting Kansas City in Toronto is the nightcap on uh, Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Um, yeah, there you go. That's, a, I think that's about it. That's a good show, right? It's a good Friday. Phone lines are not ringing. I'm going to release Trevor Hayward from his screening duties. We'll just go ahead and close out this show. Appreciate uh, Ross Dunbar and Eric Gomez with their for their contributions today. Follow us on Twitter at Soccer Morning. Um, I don't know. Just just be on the lookout for news and stuff for, as related to the sh- as it relates to the show. Just be aware. Let's just say that. I'll talk to you guys on Monday. Bye.